from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Uh, a little wet outside, but a, a great morning for all of us to worship together here in this beautiful sanctuary. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Sumner Case. I'm currently an elder serving on the session here at First Presbyterian Church. Please join me in our call to worship. I invite you to celebrate. Let us keep the feast. What better time to celebrate than now? Let us keep the feast. May we ever keep the feast with sincerity and truth. Let us keep the feast and let us worship our God. Please turn with me in your pew Bible to Luke 14, 16 to 23, which can be found on page 72 in the New Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. Then Jesus said to him, someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have brought a piece of land and I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have just been married and therefore I cannot come. So the slave returned and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house become, became very angry to his slave. Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, Sir, what you ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the master said to the slave, Go out into the roads and lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, some of us enter this space this morning with a bad taste in our mouths. What we've been feeding on has not given us life. Parties and the great feasts we have chose to attend leave us wanting for more. So may we taste and see the power of your word this morning, that it would be opened up afresh to us so that we may consume it and it may consume us in the hopes of being more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the decade following the dismantling of the Berlin Wall witnessed a large migration of diplomats and ambassadors and military personnel and politicians, a great migration from the 
the West German capital city of Bonn toward the east to the once capital and now current capital of a unified Germany, the city of Berlin. Now, for the U.S. government, particularly for our Department of Defense, this shift meant selling a lot of property in Bonn. Hundreds of apartments, multiple stores, movie theaters, and a bowling alley were all put up for sale as U U.S. military and diplomatic personnel were getting ready to move to Berlin. One piece of property, however, that was not going to be placed on the market by the Department of Defense was a church. Yes, at one time, the Department of Defense owned a church in Bonn, Germany. That's another sermon. But that church held actually two congregations. A Protestant congregation, which Katie, my wife, and I served in 2001 and 2002, and a Roman Catholic congregation. The church was originally built for American personnel, was, had services in English in both the Protestant and Catholic traditions, but toward the end of the century, both congregations had seen an influx of, of internationals. People from all over the world began to call these congregations home. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, these communities did in fact become houses of prayer for all nations as they, they each had about 35 nations represented in their individual communities. Now members of these two churches wanted to keep worshiping in that building even though that many people would be moving east, there would still be some who were living in Bonn. Their work was, was still in Bonn. Their, their home was in, in Bonn. And so about 200 attendees in each one of these congregations began to rally leadership saying, hey, we, we don't want this church to be sold. We want to continue to worship in this place. And so leaders of both of those congregations began to put a deal together with the DOD in the hopes that the U.S. government could give the church as a gift to the city of Bonn, that they would just give it to them as a gift symbolizing German and American friendship. It was proposed that there would be a very public ceremony and a very big party celebrating this transaction with many dignitaries and other notable persons being in attendance. Now, the idea gained a lot of traction within these two uh, communities of faith, and eventually it was presented to the mayor of Bonn. When she reviewed the plan, her first response was terse, but not surprising. She said, why in the world would I want another church? I've got a ton of churches in the city of Bonn, and they're all empty. Why do I need another church to take care of, and she actually turned the invitation down. She said no to those church leaders. Now, it just so happened that in 1999, the G8 summit was held in Cologne, a city just north of Bonn, and then President Bill Clinton was going to be there for the meetings. Congregational leadership had a lot of connections through the Department of Defense, and somehow they got Bill Clinton and his entourage to agree to come to the city of Bonn to give the church to the city as a sign of German and American friendship if the mayor would change her mind. And so a new plan was drafted, 
They brought it to the mayor, and now the mayor, having seen that Bill Clinton was going to be presenting the church to her on behalf of the city, well, she did, in fact, change her mind. All of a sudden, she thought it was a great idea to receive one more church if Bill Clinton was the one doing the gifting. You see, at that time, she was in an election cycle. She was up for re-election in her post. President Clinton had very favorable ratings in Germany, and so it was the perfect opportunity for positive political publicity. And so on June 20th, 1999, President Clinton handed over the symbolic keys to the church building to a very proud mayor. Afterwards, they had a great party, a great banquet, a great feast, and a few months later, she did win re-election. Have you ever accepted an invitation to some party or some event or, or some happening based on who you knew to be on the guest list? Have you ever accepted an invitation like that because you knew that person or this person was going to be on the guest list? Or conversely, have you ever rejected or declined an invitation to some party, to great, some great uh, feast, some great banquet because you knew this person or that person was going to be there and you just couldn't stomach the thought of being in the same place as they were? One of the more troubling stories in the Sundermeyer family anthology took place in February 1970. My mother and father were to be married in that year. In fact, they had chosen Valentine's Day for their wedding. But my paternal grandfather refused to show up. He refused to go to the wedding and to the party that followed. See, my father, my dad, grew up in the Kensington section of Philadelphia, one of the poorest neighborhoods in that city. And my mom's family lived in a neighborhood called Mayfair, an economically stable neighborhood. And although for some you really couldn't see the difference between these two neighborhoods in that time, it was a big deal. And my grandfather had created this narrative in his own mind. It wasn't true, but he created this narrative in his own mind that my mother's family looked down on him and my father's family because they were poor. And so he decided that he wasn't going to show up to a party they were hosting. He wasn't going to show up to a party they were paying for. He wasn't going to show up to a party where they would be in attendance. And so he didn't go. My assumption is that a vast majority of us somewhere in our own family anthologies have a story like that one, unfortunately. I also have the assumption that, that a vast majority of us have on at least one occasion ourselves, at least on one occasion, have made a decision as to whether or not to say yes or no to an invitation based upon who is going to be on the guest list. That at some point in our lives we have had that conversation in our own minds. Maybe we've even acted on it, saying yes or no, based on who was on the guest list. First parable set before us in this summer series where we'll be exploring 14 of Jesus' parables. This first parable in the series is about an invitation 
to a great party. Now, parable is a, is a fictional story told to illustrate a moral or spiritual truth. Jesus often told parables to explain the contours and the, the characteristics of the kingdom of God. And in this particular parable, the context for this telling was actually at a great party. It was actually at a dinner party that Jesus himself was invited to. Jesus was dining at the house of one of the religious leaders of his time. It was the Sabbath day, and as they were eating a meal and sharing in this, this great uh, festive banquet of a meal, a man with dropsy enters the scene. He all of a sudden shows up at the party, and Jesus asks the lawyers and the religious leaders in attendance this question. He says, is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not? And they don't respond. We don't know why they don't respond. They don't respond. So Jesus took the man and he healed him. And he sent him on the way. This is Jesus par excellence. He's, he's touching the infirmed. He's bringing close to him people on the margins, people on the fringes of society. He's healing them. He is forgiving them. He's making a way for them to be at the table, to be with him to be close. The dinner party rolls on. Jesus notices that the guests were jockeying to, to sit at places of honor, presumably trying to get close to the host. The closer you got to the host, told everybody there how important you were. And so Jesus gave them this instruction right from the Gospel of Luke. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor. In case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host, and the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place, and then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit down at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. And many of us know this line. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus, again, at his very best. Take the place of, of humility. Be gracious in the invitation that you get to be in the party at the first place. So after hearing that instruction, one of the dinner guests said to Jesus, Blessed is anyone... Blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, when I read this, I imagine that this guy thinks that he is one of the ones who is going to eat in the kingdom of God, right? He, he's part of this upper religious class that Jesus is, is dining with. Blessed is anyone. What is he saying? Blessed is me. Because I know I'm going to get to eat bread in the kingdom of God. And it's at that point that Jesus tells the parable that McHenry read for us this morning. The parable of a great feast, a great party, a great banquet. And it is an insight for all of us as to who will, in fact, eat the bread in the kingdom of God. The kingdom that Jesus says is not far off. 
A kingdom that is not somewhere out there over the rainbow. A kingdom that is not in the sweet by and by, but a kingdom that is here right now, inaugurated in Jesus' ministry. It is here and, and not yet. We can enter and receive it today. This kingdom is accessible even now. Now, there's a lot of interpretations that have come along the way in this particular, for this rather particular text, this great banquet. I want to elevate one of the interpretations. It's one that has gained a lot of traction in various Christian communities. It's one that maybe you yourself have been formed by. You yourself may have, have come to believe, yes, this is how I understand this text. So let me just walk you through it. It goes like this. God is the host of the great banquet. And God has invited, we confess, a great many people. God has invited a great many people to come. And God sends his servant, who is Jesus. God sends his servant, Jesus, to let the invited guests know that the party is ready to be had. The servant goes out and encounters some. We're told that there are many people who are invited. We only get to hear from three. Many people are invited, but we, we hear from three. And these invitees begin to share excuses as to why they are unable to come at this time. I've just bought land that I need to inspect. I bought some livestock, and I need to, I need to, to try them out. I, I've just been married, and so I cannot come and attend your party. This interpretation identifies the excuse makers oftentimes. Follow me here. This interpretation often identifies the excuse makers. Those who are turning down the invitation often parallels them with either the Jewish leaders of Jesus' time or the whole of the Jewish people. Or at least the ones that say no to Jesus being the Christ, being the Messiah. So angry is God, this interpretation goes, at their excuse making and their rejection of the invitation of the kingdom of God that God says to Jesus, go out into the streets and the lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. This command is not all that surprising given what we know about the gospel of Luke where Jesus is constantly including the outsiders. He's constantly bringing in the marginalized. He's constantly bringing those who are limited, who are on the fringes of society into the center of God's will, calling them even recipients of God's kingdom. Now the way that this interpretation continues to work is that God offered the original invitation to either Jewish leaders or to the whole Jewish community. And when the invitation comes, many of them say no. They make up excuses. They reject the invitation. And God responds to their no, the interpretation goes, in anger. God gets angry that these folk have said no. And in God's anger, God decides to invite outsiders to the party. As if inviting outsiders was plan B. Have you heard this before? Oh, well, if they're not coming, then, then I got to go to plan B. Look, let's just bring in the poor, bring in the lame, bring in the crippled, bring in the blind. As if... Those on the margins 
were an afterthought in the mind of God. As if they were an afterthought in the mind of God. Now those outsiders, metaphorically speaking, also include Gentiles, which is the vast majority of us. And Gentiles, like us, tend to hold or have at least been swayed by this particular interpretation of the text. And, and we have been taught in, in many places that, that the Jews didn't get it, so God went to plan B and included all of us. It's like the guy that begins with saying, before Jesus rather begins the parable, saying, blessed is the one who gets to eat in the kingdom of God. The Gentiles have become the blessed ones. There's obviously problems with that interpretation. I hope you see them. There's problems with that. First, it borders on, probably crosses into, no, definitely crosses into anti-Semitism. The Jews are obtuse. They don't understand. They reject Jesus. We have to reject that theological thinking that has no place in the Christian church. Secondly, it intimates that the invitation extended to outsiders, I referenced this earlier, only comes after the insiders reject it. As if including the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and we can add the Gentiles and all those left out and all those left behind, that their inclusion was only an afterthought. It was only an afterthought. But is that true? Did God's kingdom plan of salvation and reconciliation change based on whether or not some group of people said yes or no to it? This interpretation at some level is dependent upon, I think, a whiny God. Oh, you're not coming to my party? Well, fine, I'm inviting somebody else. I mean, is that the God we meet in Scripture? Is that the God we meet in the world who is, in fact, by the power of the Holy Spirit, forming communities of faith made up of people from all nations? Is that the God we meet that somehow including the marginal and the oppressed and the lame and the blind is somehow an afterthought in the mind and in the heart of God? That's not the God we meet in Scripture. And it's not the God we see working in and for the world. You look at verse 21 and 22, and I'll close with this. The host says to the servant, go out into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. But notice what the servant says back. Did, did you notice this? Sir, what you ordered has been done. There's still more room, right? The verb is in the perfect tense. The master says, bring in the poor, the crippled, and the lame. And the servant says, it's already happened. Well, how can it already have happened if it wasn't true that they were already on the original guest list. Because the servant wouldn't have gone outside of his master's request, do something behind his back, and bring in those who weren't already invited. They are already there because they have been already invited. And they said yes. They said yes. Friends, the guest list in the kingdom of God is longer than you and I can imagine. There are people within the sound of my voice right now who do not believe their name is on the guest list. Some of us can't believe that others' names are on the guest list. And I wonder, I just wonder, if those excuse makers 
were making those excuses because they knew who was on the guest list. Because they knew what kind of party God was throwing, and they didn't want their name next to the blind, to the crippled, to the lame, to the Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, do you know what kind of party God's throwing in the world? It's not a party that mirrors our political process, I can tell you that. It's not a party that, is, that mirrors our divisiveness, our segmentation. It is a party that mirrors the very life and love of Jesus Christ who from the very beginning has included all people on the guest list. May the church live as if it's so. For the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world, all of God's people say, Amen. I realize I always go over here. I'm just changing it up a little bit on this side. This is a good looking side too. The charge I think is pretty simple, at least as, it, as I receive it this morning in my own life. The charge is to be ever mindful of how long this guest list is, to understand what it means to say yes to this party, that all along God's plan has been to include all of creation I think our world, our time, our age, our culture desperately needs a church that is willing to model that in and for the world. And so may we learn this day and in the days ahead to do just that. And for the journey that awaits, may the peace of God, which goes beyond all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in him. May his peace be inside of you this day and every day of your life.